Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Welcome to Holly History. We discuss what you want to hear. Uh, Mr. D here today doing a special segment where we interview people in, uh, in the historical community. And, you know, we want to start with fellow teachers. So I figured what better way by calling my friend and colleague, uh, Matt, Mr. Matt McCracken over at Alexander School District, uh, kind of south of Batavia. And uh, Matt McCracken teaches uh, Global 9 and AP Psych, and he's also the assistant football coach and has beaten me, I think, a total of five or six times as I've coached <laughs> in the same conference. Um, how you doing? I'm doing good. We are at home with our two kids. Uh, Mrs. McCracken is also a, a teacher, so we are both teaching remotely, trying to figure things out here, but... All told, we're we're pretty healthy. We're we're yeah. Do you think it's harder for the elementary teachers or the secondary teachers like us? Oh, I think it's way harder for them. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, for us, I mean, my my kids have been using Google Classroom for our entire school year. Mm-hmm. So jump starting the whole distance learning process was way easier than to basically start from scratch. My wife's in first grade and they've had to completely reinvent things and uh, come up with a workable schedule that parents can do from home. Cause with high school too, it's the students that are directing their own learning. Really the parents are maybe there supporting, but that's it. But for these elementary schoolers, the parents kind of have to take the lead and, it's not easy. So we're, we're both answering a lot of emails and stuff, but I'll always say that her job is harder. Not, not just to score brownie points, but. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm with you. Cause Mrs. DeMora was in the same boat um, with elementary music, you know, it's, and, and you guys are in a really interesting position being, you know, you're teaching students and then you have your kids at home, you know, uh, balancing that has got to be tough. So my next question for you is what are you doing in quarantine that you might not normally be doing? Uh, if you were coaching or teaching, I mean, getting ready for the next football season, what are you doing with your time right now that you wouldn't normally be doing? I'm definitely staying up later. (laughs) And I mean, the reality for us is we've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home. So it's just easier for us to do a lot of our work after the kids have gone to bed. So I don't think my sleep cycles are as warped as some of the kids were teaching where <laughs> I'm getting assignments turned in at 2.30, 3 a.m. Uh, but I'm definitely staying up later than I normally would. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. And then, I mean, I think like most people, I'm trying to take advantage of some of this time to do things around the house. I spent my whole weekend scraping my front porch which the last time you saw it, it had all the paint peeling off it. So that really <laughs> <Yeah>. looks bad. 
<laughs> we're halfway through that project. You know, doing some things that normally I would have to wait until June or July and then uh, trying to keep kids out of during the day and school work done in the evenings. Yep. Yep. I think, I think everybody, um, you know, is definitely trying to maximize the house projects, but I think when you get to a certain point in them, it's like, Oh, like I got to stop. I got to do something else. I mean, that's, I, I started like three in my backyard and I was like, okay. And then I got too deep into them and I realized they had to go grade some stuff. Do you get updates in your phone for when kids turn work in for Google? Yes. Yes. Okay. I do. So I've had to disable it's... my notifications because <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like dead asleep at like three in the morning and I get buzz, 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 buzz. And I'm like, who's doing work right now? <laughs> and it's like crazy. All right. So we got, we got Mr. McCracken back here. Um, it's just, you know, in the world of virtual learning, technical difficulties do happen. Uh, we're talking about, uh, I believe we talking about updates, uh, buzzing on our phone at random times at, at night. I was getting vib- vibrations from Schoology at like 3 a.m. on my nightstand. I was like, oh, I'm going to put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Do you think it says a lot about kids doing work at different times and crazy times of the day? Yeah, well, I think it tells us a lot about like just how abnormal this is. I mean, everything from the sleeping and waking hours that kids are working with to, um, I mean, sharing the same household for this many hours a day with the same people. I mean, it's tough on us as adults. So when you're 13, 14, 15, and you're with your siblings constantly, and I don't know, I, I think when I was a kid, I used to play video games till all hours at night, but that was a summertime only thing that maybe I'd get away with a couple times a week. But yeah, I think it is. Uh, it is definitely uh, going to be a hallmark of this coronavirus era we find ourselves in. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it, maybe it makes people think about school start time or when, you know, when, what time students learn better. Um, I don't know. I mean, the governor, do you guys start in Holly? Uh, we start at seven thirty. We got to be in by seven twenty, kind of like ushering kids. And what about you guys? We're, uh, the building opens at seven thirty, and then classes start at seven forty-five. So we're, yeah. Research does say teenagers need that full eight to nine hours of sleep. They do, and it, it. I think it also says like they do better when they fall asleep later than like them trying to go to bed at like nine or ten. Like they, they're, they're was that um i'm not going to try to get into science we teach history but whatever circadian rhythms that that's it i think that's what i was looking for there you go (laughs) well that's the ap site coming out and you probably right yes (laughs) unit two yep there you go um all right so moving on why this is a question that i think we're going to ask everybody we interview and you being the first you know everybody's we're going to judge everybody's answers based on uh yours so no pressure but um, why is our subject social studies and history so important? You know, um, I always like to, I mean, we, our Twitter has been using hashtag history is King. So why is our subject area so important? So I taught the bubonic plague about a week before school closed. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's such a cliche, but if we can't take lessons from history in a time like this, I don't know when we can. Um, 
And I think as we've seen the amount of misinformation that's been just floating around the internet and uh, I think Facebook has been such a, a hotbed of questionable facts. And then you look at what people in the 1300s thought they understood about what was happening to them then. We're really not that different. So I think we can learn a lot from the past when we go through these really monumental life-changing events because something similar has happened before. So as teachers, finding those, those connective tissues is one of our biggest jobs. So when something like this does happen, we're maybe a little bit more prepared for not just what to do, but what not to do. Um, so yeah, I, I, I could not have planned that better this year in my ninth grade curriculum. Solid, solid answer. Um, everybody will be trying to live up to that one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, it, it, does it scare you that Facebook and Twitter will be historical source one day that historians look back at? I think that just the sheer volume of stuff <laughs> and like we're, we're the most literate society that's ever existed. Yeah. You know, when you, uh, you go back to, you know, the earliest civilizations where it's more, it's as much archeology span as anything. We have so much written work out there. It's going to be a, a huge task sorting through, you know, what's legitimate, what's not. And, mm-hmm. uh, I certainly would not want to <laughs> comb through some of the stuff that you see on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> Again, seeing it once is enough. Well, it'll be more. It'll be more permanent too. I mean, you can't have a fire in the Alexandrian Library that's going to delete tweets or Facebook statuses. You know, so I, I guess we won't lose anything to history hypothetically because they always say you know once it's out on the internet, it's always there. So I guess maybe you know maybe history majors two hundred years from now will actually have it harder than we did. You know. When we yeah, to, and I think, went to look up a source, yeah. it would be like you couldn't find, you need to find two or three books and then you can go. But, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, but it, it's, and we think about how we, we access the information. Like we have so much control over who we see when we see it, like whose words, like the, we, we talk about the bubbles that we form around ourselves. So I think as a historian in the future, that's going to be incredibly challenging too, mm-hmm. is sorting out, uh, the, you know, the biases that are coming from all of these sources, because we're talking about everyday people speaking with authority uh, about things that they might not actually have a, a super, uh, you know, a lot of ability to really speak with expertise or authority, mm-hmm. but they sound like they do. So I think that's going to be a challenging thing as a historian to figure out whose words actually really mean something. Yeah, I wonder if secondary sources in the future will have, um, I don't want to say more weight, but, you know, maybe historians will be starting with secondary sources before they go into the primary because they want to know what to be looking for as accurate or trace out those biases of the, the, the purpose of the source, you know, point of view, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, personally, and I, I know when I'm talking with kids about how to evaluate a source, um, don't knock secondary sources. I mean, mm-hmm. just because the person wasn't necessarily there doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to provide you with so much valuable information. And um, you think about the process that goes into creating 
a textbook um, or, you know, what we, what we came up reading, like historical trade books. And uh, so I, I do caution my students of immediately downgrading a source because it's, it's secondary. Some of them are going to be actually way more reliable than the, mm-hmm. your overtly biased primary sources. Yeah, it, certainly you get distance from that event. It provides a little more objectivity. Um, sometimes you know, they talk about the debate of like, when does something leave political science and enter history? At what point, you know, um, and, and things change when people, and this sounds, you know, it sounds bad, but like when people pass away who were alive during an event, they, they're, they're naturally less objective because they're a part of it. When those people pass on, the narrative seems to always change. Um, you know, you look at the first world war, I feel like that's always evolving it, being a century away now. I think the second world war is about to enter that. Um, the civil war has certainly gone through the gamut of that and, and, and oh, yeah. slavery. I mean, you know, so it is, it is fascinating and you're right. You know, you got to tell students, you know, I think, I think we, we have done so little of primary sources in social studies education for such a long time that like we almost in the last like 10 years, we've been pushing primary sources more away from the textbook, push primary sources and you know, that pendulum swung and I guess you're, you're right. We got to swing it back to no secondaries are pretty solid. It's maybe a good place to start. Check out the bibliography can lead you to uh-huh. some good primary sources. Go, go check out too. So, you know, you're absolutely right. We, you can't poo poo secondary sources. Yeah. I think ha- having a balance is really important and just having an understanding that you got to evaluate each one on its own merits and not automatically assume mm-hmm. that, Oh, well this person was there. So this is all true. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're, what you're saying about how as, you, as an event grows more distant, and we just learn more over time too. Like we discover new things. My son is obsessed with dinosaurs right now. <laughs> and one of his dinosaur books, it has three different models of Maguanodon, one from like the early 1800s, one from the late 1800s, and one from 2015. And it looks like a, a completely different creature. Because mm-hmm. we just keep finding new bones and adding to our understanding of what it actually probably looked like, yeah. and we're still probably wrong. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's it's being comfortable with uh, not knowing, and that's that's the essence of teaching, right there too. Not knowing what to do sometimes, but being comfortable with that. <laughs> um, to bring us to our next question, do you think social studies education is on the right track? I do, and I mean. Where we are in New York State, um, I think the moving away from rote memorization and more into historical thinking and your ability to, like we were just talking about, breaking down a source and trying to understand what this means in context, what is this author's uh, set of biases that they're coming at us with. Um, I think that in the grand scheme of things, that's a really important part of our job is creating thinkers or helping Mm -hmm. people, helping young people to become better at that kind of critical analysis of what they're reading. Um, Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about how there's just so much written content out there to consume. So this is a, a real life skill that we're helping develop. And then also I love it because now instead of having to race to cover in the ninth grade, we basically run from prehistory to the year 1750. And when I first started, it was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to possibly touch on all these things? And now there's not as much pressure to do that. Um, mm-hmm. 
things are going to get left out. And those are always huge decisions about what, what are the most important topics, but the ability to now go deep on certain things and spend a week, a week and a half, two weeks on one topic that we can really dive into. My students have, have enjoyed that. There's a couple of our units, the kids that are graduating seniors still mentioned to me, like we, we do a big debate on uh, the first emperor of China, Chen Shi Huangdi, and we do uh, a deep dive on the Mongols. That was always a lot of fun. So being able to get into the nitty gritty of those topics instead of just racing to cover everything has been a lot of fun for me as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you that the depth rather than breadth of content has been really refreshing. Um, I'm fortunate like you in eighth grade, you know, I don't have a test I'm tied to. Um, I think the stress level is still there for people to get through content as 10th and 11th grade teachers. Um, neither of those are in that boat, which is nice, but we're still creating those students for those reads exams. Um, we definitely are. But like you said, you know, developing the critical thinking, I think is the bigger part of that exam now, instead of that jeopardy test, like where either, you know, that question or you don't, oh, yeah. you, you don't, you know, so that's been, that's been great. I do agree with you. I think definitely on the right track. Do you find that though, sometimes, you know, when this, when the new changes started, uh, it was a big push for the skill rather than the content. Um, do you ever get nervous about the the pendulum swinging too far away from content towards skill? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you can't. How can you actually analyze a source? You know, you give a kid a document and then they have no background knowledge about what it is they're actually reading. So it does have to be a balance. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of the Stanford history group mm -hmm. resources that I mean, I know a ton of social studies teachers use because you're starting with a little bit of background information, just enough, you know, you're not spending 40 minutes lecturing, but you're giving the kids enough background to know what they're talking about. And then you're going to put those historical sources in front of them to wrestle mm -hmm. with. So, yeah, I think you can't have one and not the other Yep. right now. Yep. I agree. And also what I've kind of done with my kids in eighth grade too, is like I've given them, you know, when you see the sources in high school, there's not very much context at the top of that source. Usually maybe like a sentence in eighth grade. I've been giving them tough sources, but little more of that context for that particular source. Just to, I don't want to use the word crutch, but just, you know, they, they need that. Um, like you said, you can't really analyze something if you don't have the, the bottom, the bottom base level of knowledge. So I think that's yeah, and I mean, and there are kids that like sitting there and listening, mm -hmm. and yeah. you know, that's I mean, you're like me, I think, and you said that you might be interviewing a couple of our former Geneseo professors down the road here. Like that was awesome mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> a student was just sitting there and taking it all in. Um, so I think there's still room for that, but that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, I think kids like a story too. And that's where the context kind of comes in. Yes. You know, I fell in love with history because it's a story. Um, I think I could speak for a lot of us in our profession where it's like, we loved hearing the stories. You know, I remember my dad would read me, you know, last of the Mohicans as a kid <laughs> going to sleep. Yeah. Go figure <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> Works at Fort Niagara for seven years. Yeah, um, my, my, you know. my dad didn't read James Fenimore Cooper to me as a child, but <laughs> <laughs> it explains so many things, right? It really does. <laughs> yeah, that and Rudyard Kipling. Um, <laughs> so, 
So is there anything you think we could do better though in social studies education right now? Um, I'm interested to see where I, I know there's the next thing coming down the road for us is the civic readiness and a really big emphasis on the citizenship, citizenship aspect of social studies. So though, I'm interested to see where it goes because I do think that that's somewhere where we've got a lot of room for growth is kids being more active participants and, and maybe even just taking more of an active interest in what's going on around them. Um, I think kids are curious. Current events, usually when we, we turn to those discussions and I know you've been teaching a current events class for years, mm -hmm. um, they can't get enough of it. Yeah. And we, we, the reality is we're, you know, we, a lot of the time we have a time crunch and we have to cut those discussions off sometimes a lot sooner than we'd like to. But I think finding a way to get our students more interested in the events that are shaping their lives and maybe even preparing them to have more of an impact themselves as young people, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, joining a political party or anything like that. But mm -hmm. I, I do think uh, the civic end of social studies there, there's changes being made. I'm just interested to see how effective they are and, and what tweaks need to be made over the next few years. I had a um, professor. I, I, I do agree with you. I think the civics is one of the biggest areas we kind of maybe fall short in. And I think there's a different amount of reasons for that. I had a professor in my master's program that once said he was from Florida. So he looked at our stuff and he, he was very new to the New York system. And he said, you guys are historians. You know, social studies is more than just history. And I kind of, you know, first of all, you know, me and people who listen know me, I kind of like, was like, whoa, easy buddy. Like we love our, we love our history here in New York. Um, but I think he's kind of right. You know, that we wait till 12th grade to teach pig and we do do civics in different levels of obviously our curriculum. But I, I think, I think there's a little piece of civics missing in, in every grade level. Um, you teach it in 12th grade, you teach participation in government. And it's a half-year course. Um, I, I don't know, you know, seniors right now, it's, it's a realistic thing. Do you think maybe having it senior year when they're a little burnt out or their minds and other things is a detriment? But on the flip side, they're ready to vote soon. So they need that. So I, do you think maybe like the when we teach participation in government is an issue? I think it makes sense, you know, as a 17 or 18-year-old when you are – going to be able to actually participate in the process soon. I, I do think that you're right. That kind of nudge to take a more active interest helps, but you're also right in that. There, I mean, senioritis is a real thing. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we've got a really engaging teacher at Alexander that teaches participation in government. And a lot of it is, is project based. The kids, mm -hmm. uh, select an issue that they have to take a position on and actually try to come up with solutions, how to solve what they identify as a major societal problem. So I, I think when you do it that way, you know, by 12th grade, I'm, I'm hoping, and after seventh, eighth and 11th grade of learning the systems of U S government and having that background, um, I really don't think we need to beat them over the head with that stuff again. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the comparative aspect of it is something we could do a lot more with in ninth and 10th grade with global looking at how our system is different from 
others around the world. I, I don't yeah. know if that's something that really gets emphasized a whole lot in uh, the current state of the, the curriculum. Cause you're right. It is, it is a lot of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it's when you, when you have so much, we talk about the breadth again and the depth and all that and what versus what um, it's almost like you want a current events class as a current events slash, and this is how I do my, how I run my current events class. Anyways, it's almost current events slash pig the way that I run it. And you almost want that to be a course requirement in like ninth, 10th or 11th grade before pig, you know, give them mm-hmm. that last taste of like the reminder and then move them into pig and pig is almost like, now you got to take all that and use it. Um, I guess it'd be like the dream system. If I could come up with one. Yeah, let's just, we should require two social studies classes per student per year. I think that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm we sure they do it. I'm sure the ELA people and you know the math people with with their with all their with all the tests they have to take will be like, oh yeah, go ahead and do it. <laughs> we got to wiggle our way into STEM. We need to be like STEM. <laughs> get get that H in there. Uh, if we keep going on the STEM stuff and our feelings on that, um, a I think some of our former professors' ears will start ringing. Um, I'll get an email <laughs> and. <laughs> As well as, you know, us crossing into murky waters and ticking off some of our colleagues. So we'll, we'll save that one for another show. <laughs> um, what, are you, what are you diving into or reading right now? Um, you know, we are during quarantine. You got more time in your hands. Um, and, you, you know, I, you are dealing with two beautiful little kids. But um, I got to believe you like, you know, I know you love history. You're, what are you reading right now? What are you interested in? Yeah. So, I mean, I did make when we figured out that schools were going to be closed for we didn't you know nobody knew how long at first but I did make a point to make sure I was reading every day um so I have gotten back into the history of football which is a little one of my passions as a historian so I reread a book that I read in college when I was writing a paper on Jim Thorpe uh who for those of you that out there that don't know Jim Thorpe was one of the early great American athletes. He was an all-American college football player. He was a gold medalist at the 1912 Olympics. Um, And he's really fascinating because he grew up on an Indian reservation. He went to the Carlisle Indian School, which is probably most famous for those before and after pictures of killed the Indian, saved the man, um, which is, you know, it does not have a good reputation, but that little school in Pennsylvania was responsible for one, one of the most innovative like, football programs in the history of the United States. And this is, you know, 1912, this was a time when people were still getting killed on a pretty regular basis playing football. Um, so the book I read was about Thorpe's Carlisle Indian school team playing the West Point army team. So you had Jim Thorpe on one side and then you had Dwight Eisenhower playing for the other side and that game Eisenhower breaks his leg and ends his athletic career. And up to that point, he'd kind of been a, he kind of been a jock sports were the thing that really drove him in life. And he has this career ending injury and he goes on to become Dwight Eisenhower. So it's a really cool little, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not the most important event in history, but the kind of ripple effect of that Carlisle versus army game is really cool. Um, and then right now I'm reading 
a 500 page biography of Vince Lombardi that I've had on my bookshelf for years and had never gotten around to actually reading. So I'm making my way through that. And Lombardi is really cool because if you look at how historical figures get created and sort of the myth making process around it, um, there's so much to him that goes beyond the motivational quotes. Like he was like most historical figures, a complicated guy. He had a very, uh, uh, what's what's a nice way of putting this? Very fraught relationship with his own family. Like his marriage was not the happiest. He had uh, his father-son relationship with his son, Vincent Jr. Was really never all that good. And this is somebody whose who's success was all based on forming relationships with, with young men and their athletic prime. So really complicated guy. It's a really good book, David Marinus. Uh, when pride still mattered. So those, that was a really long answer, but that's what I've been getting into is my, my football history fix. Well, I think uh, you just illustrate with both those things is, you know, the story, the story behind both, you know, that's what piques your interest, the story of that game, you know, and, and that's probably why you love it, you know, besides the sports too. It's both of those are good, solid stories with, history context perspective bias and all the things that we teach kids in there um my district actually talked about creating a sports history pathway um with brockport at some point we never can really have got it off the ground yet but you know you take if you take like um sports marketing um sports medicine sports history and all these things you kind of have like that designation your diploma so I would love to see something like that happen in like local high schools, uh, working through colleges, like a sports pathway. I think it said sports history pathway. It's a sports pathway. So. I mean, as a high school student, I would have jumped all over that. Um, Absolutely. It, it's, uh, there's a lot of fertile ground out there. And it, if you start to make your way, not just, you know, our own country's history with sports, you know, they're intertwined in a lot of ways. But then if you look at, I mean, soccer hooligan culture is something that has always fascinated me. Like how <laughs> European soccer clubs, that whole deal, I know very little about, but you don't get that many people that fired up for an event without years and years and years of backstory. It's just a really cool thing to me. Yeah, absolutely. I have a follow-up question to this one, by the way. Have you read Killers of the Flower Moon yet by David Grant? No. Because I know you share my love of Native American history. Um, you know, we have one professor in particular to thank for that. Um, it's, if, are you familiar with the premise of it? I'm not at all. It's, uh, you, once I start talking about it, you're going to know it. Um, the Osage Indians, um, the Osage Nation, had that massive oil deposit under the reservation. And in the 19-teens and 20s, they start dying mysteriously. And it's going to be a full uh, feature film with uh, Leo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro directed by uh, Martin Scorsese pretty soon. And it's, it's not written like in a historical way. It's kind of like, it's just a uh, trying to find a comparison, kind of like a David McCullough style thing almost okay. where you're kind of reading like a, it reads like a almost investigative journalism. Um, definitely recommend that one to you. I could not put that down. I thought of you while reading it. I never texted you. I was like, I got to tell Mick about this. Um, yeah, I'll have to check it out. And it's funny you just said that because 
the uh, the next book I've got queued up. And I don't know how, what this says about me as a history major, but I found that the investigatory journalism is where I've gravitated the last few years. Like Lawrence Wright's become one of my favorite authors. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people probably know him from, he wrote a, a book on Scientology called Going Clear and they made a mm-hmm. HBO documentary about it. But he wrote a fantastic book on 9-11 called The Looming Tower. Um, and he, he just released a novel that came out that I'm probably going to get. But mm-hmm. yeah, I uh, send me the, the Amazon link. I will definitely check that out. Yeah, it, it's I, I could not could not put it down. So that brings us to like our serious end of our serious questions. We're now we're gonna do with we're gonna do this. Everybody we bring on the show is rapid fire ten questions. Um, where Mr. McCracken here will have limited time to answer these. He was stressing a little bit over them. Um, it oh, goes geez. in a it goes in a weird order. So I'm doing like one history question and then one random question. So um, we get some pretty interesting ones in here. So we're kicking it off. Number one, who's your favorite historical figure? Genghis Khan. Okay. Yep. And you, you've listened to Dan Carlin's Wrath of the Cons, right? No, I I haven't. Um, oh, it's I I have to buy the like the the pass or whatever for. I've been just re-listening to all the free ones you can get on Spotify right now. He so. doesn't. He that's not on. That's on the free ones. It's on Apple free ones. I'll have to I'll have to see if I can listen to it for free. I've listened yeah. to the Persian Empire set. But yeah, I, yeah, on my honeymoon, this is this is kind of funny. <laughs> on my honeymoon, I read uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by uh, the author's name is escaping me right now. But it's one of the best history books I've ever read. Okay. Um, that's that's if you want to talk about cool backstory, like the the guy killed his stepbrother when he was like ten. <laughs> wild. All right, favorite musician or band? Oh man. Uh, Coheed and Cambria was my favorite band when I was in high school, so I'll go with that. You did, you did grow up in that phase of uh, the, the skater punk kind yeah, of emo rock, emo rock man. Yeah. Yep, yep, and and yep. Uh, favorite historical moment. Favorite historical moment. Oh, or event. Um. This is, it's going to be such a cliche answer, but when I was in eighth grade and kind of one of the things that got me fired up to be a history teacher was learning about D-Day. So mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of couch my answer and say like the lead up to D-Day, D-Day, and then the weeks immediately after. So the Nor- the Normandy invasion, I think, is one of the most fascinating Operation Overlord. Uh, I've I've read probably the most books and most content about that of it more than any other individual subject connects with your Dwight D Eisenhower too. There you go. Yeah. Um, favorite food. Mac and cheese. You can do okay. a lot with Mac and cheese. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to do with it? That isn't just eat it. Uh, well, I, I put, hot, I put hot sauce on it. Oh, okay. Frank's red hot practice. Uh-huh. Okay. But, uh, Pulled pork mac and cheese oh, is amazing. Yeah. I'm going to mix the pulled pork and the mac and cheese. On a sandwich? No, no. I've never done it? I've, I've had a pulled pork and mac and cheese sandwich, which, which was good. There was that, um, the truck in Geneseo served that, remember? Food truck? I don't know. I never oh, had, you they, weren't there. They, 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 did, they didn't have food trucks when I was in Geneseo. Oh, you I were was, just a bit ahead of me. 
You you hats was just the thing my last year or two yeah. there. It, the truck, it's, well, it's, the, it's the cheesed and confused truck. It's run by a couple of Geneseo alumni. You will see it around Rochester and the surrounding areas. Every, they have the pork and mac, which is a pulled pork, mac and cheese. Oh. Yeah, that was pretty good. I would, I would eat that. Yes, it's, it's solid. <laughs> All right. Favorite president? Oh, man, I hate this question. I, I'm not a fan either, but I like. Oh, I like that's why I like to ask it. I like to ask because it makes people squirm. Got to come up with something really profound, like why John Quincy Adams is meant. I don't know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna cop out and say Harry Truman. Okay, I um, it's a good pick. I think he said he had to grapple with some of the most difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, com- coming in uh, after the death of FDR and having to, you know, you're you're at the close of World War II. Um, the fact that he wasn't supposed to win re-election. And then that, that image of him holding up the newspaper is one of my favorite things. So I, I'll go with Truman. Okay, good choice. Um, did you want to do anything else besides your current career in teaching? Um, well, not really. Not since, I mean, I, I wanted to be a social studies teacher from about ninth grade on. Um, I did when I, when I was younger. I, I this is because I had an eighth grade social studies teacher who it's, it was a formational figure for me, but Bill Snyder at Oakfield was a national guardsman. So I was, I was convinced I was going to be like an army ranger Delta force guy when I was in high school. And then that never did pan out, but I once considered a career in the military didn't happen. And then uh, I became a social studies teacher. Very similar paths. I also thought about that and then had a, great eighth grade teacher and then here we are both coaching football and teaching social studies <laughs> I, I had i had a i had a mom and a high school girlfriend now wife who were very influential on the whole joining the service thing they were yeah. not fans of that idea so they usually aren't <laughs> no um favorite history teacher you ever had so i just mentioned mr snyder at oak hill i i had a murderer's row of social studies teachers um Mr. Snyder was awesome, just an incredible personality, great teacher. He's still there at Oakfield. Um, I was lucky because uh, the year, the class prior to me, so this would have been uh, 2001, I mentioned Mr. Snyder was in the guard. He was actually deployed mm. right after 9-11. So the, the class ahead of me didn't have him for over half that year. But he was there for my whole eighth grade year, was an awesome guy, awesome teacher. Um, and then after that, I had Merritt Holly in ninth grade. Awesome teacher. He's the superintendent over at uh, Leroy Schools now. But six foot eight. I'll never forget. He yelled at me on the first day of class. And it was the sc- one of the scariest moments of my life. <laughs> but he uh, just funny and down to earth and a great teacher. Then I had Mr. and Mrs. Schlagenoff and the immortal Art Goldstein at Oakfield. So it would be really, really hard to pick just one. But I guess I would go with, with Mr. Snyder there. Yeah. And I know some of those people too. And I, I couldn't agree more. You definitely had a good lineup. Um, all right. I, this is, I had to put this. I was running out of questions for like the funny ones or the goofy ones. And this is one of my favorite questions to ask people. And I judge people a lot by this. I'm just kidding. Drums or flats when it comes to chicken wings? Oh, flats. Okay. Good man. Yep. Me too. <laughs> More, uh, they did a scientific study. You get better sauce to meat ratio. 
you know, when you take the first bite out of the drumstick, you're just left with white meat after that. Plus, how do you dip no drumsticks in the blue, in the blue cheese? Yeah, it's just really hard. Just don't. You got to take the blue cheese and then dunk it on there, and then you're getting spillage and stains, and nobody's yeah. happy. Yeah, flats are just better. Um, most interesting historical topic you've ever learned about or fascinated oh, you most? Um, when I was at Geneseo, and it, I didn't mean to, to do it this way, but I wound up taking three or four Native American history courses with Dr. Oberg there. And I knew nothing going in. Like I, it wasn't something that had really been uh, a favorite of mine in high school. But the more I learned about it, about just how deep that history goes, particularly in our area where there's just so much of it around you. Um, like you could drive through Livingston County and you look up in the hills and you can just think about what this would have looked like in, you know, the, the 17th and 18th century. Um, so th that was something that I think was a topic that I would, I would put up there as the most interesting because I just hadn't really known much about it going into my, my undergrad years at Geneseo. And I came out with a real appreciation for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, once you go down that rabbit hole, you're not coming out. Yeah. <laughs> Native yep. American history will hold you. Yeah. And that's, I think that's why I enjoy it so much too. Um, all right. Last one. Favorite historical film. Favorite historical film. Not the one with best history. So don't feel bad about choosing something that's, you know, <laughs> don't, there's no, there's no shame in it. You know, that they're all out there. Okay. So I'm going to pick gladiator Yep, <laughs> because I've, I've, I've watched it fairly recently. So this is definitely some recency bias because there's real historical figures in it. And the crazy thing about gladiator is they didn't make Commodus in the movie nearly as weird as he was in real life. Yep. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot to get into with that one. Yeah, didn't you ride so, ostriches in the Coliseum? No, some of, some of the ostriches I always remember. Well, he he was the gladiator emperor, but yes. he had he had a, a god complex. Yep. Um, he did that move with with uh, ancient world monarchs where they tried to like rearrange the religion and name things after themselves and did not pan out well for him. Oh, it always works. Was, don't you know that? <laughs> he was, he was murdered in a bathtub yep. by, uh, the wrestler. I can't remember the guy. Narcissus. Name, Is it narcissist? Narciss narcissist. Narcissus. That's it. Narcissus. That's it. That's it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, I'll, I'll go with gladiator. It's a good, I mean, that scene in the cup. So again, a film that's not very accurate, but who cares? You can still enjoy it for what it is. You know, yep. um, the scene in the Coliseum where he turns around and he's like, my name is Maximus Decimus. He's <laughs> like, oh, that's always iconic. Um, I mean, he's kind of the, the whole like killing of his family thing and trying to kill him. I mean, there's definitely relations to like Germanicus, who was Tiberius's father. No, not Tiberius. Oh, Caligula. 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 Man, what, what is wrong? I'm way better at my Roman history than this. Caligula's father, Germanicus, was killed by Tiberius. There, I got it. A little late at night. Um, so I guess there's some, there's some similarities there kind of, you know, so yeah, right. I figured there's a, there's a kernel of truth in there. And then, uh, I mean, kingdom of heaven too, was an underrated one. If you watch mm -hmm. the director's cut, I'd throw that in there too. Wildly inaccurate, but you gotta have some fun. You know, entertainment is, uh, 
it, it, as long as that, if that's what pulls people into history, I'm good with it, you know, and then they got to go kind of find out for themselves. Um, yeah. Student- and I mean, that would be, we talked about sports history as a class. I think, uh, an entire course on, on history through film. Like I, uh, I taught in past years, a course, uh, centered around nine 11. And one of the movies I would show is uh, zero dark 30, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic movie. It's also like incredibly misleading. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot wrong with how those events are depicted. Like the whole hunt for bin Laden, the, the raid, the lead up to it. Um, there's a lot to pick apart there, but a lot of people don't do that. Right. So I, I think you're right. You talked with, you need to make sure students are going through that process where they're not just taking it at face value. We do do a history through film class at Holly. Um, and it's like a favorite that kids take. You guys have a, have a podcast. You've got a history <laughs> through movies class. Come on. Yeah, we, um, I'm, I'm actually teaching pop culture. We kind of merged two courses, pop culture through history of film. So like I was picking, it was before when the, pan, the pandemic kind of ruined it. We started out with like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. And I mean, they got into it. Granted, a little bit of boring films at the time, but they really got into a lot of the stuff. Um, I mean. Those are wild. Did you watch those in class with Dr. Barron? I did. Why do, you, oh, why, why, do, why do you think I showed them? Man, I hope, I hope they listen to this podcast. <laughs> Um, those those are some of the most uncomfortable yep watches yeah especially 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 birth of a nation it's like oh oh man oh and and like a couple of the kids in the class are like they they get on the border of like do i laugh at how absurd this is like is that okay and i'm like yeah it's 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 absurd that this was once like you know common common thought it was it was the greatest movie ever made yep well according to woodrow wilson there yeah yeah oh yeah yeah (laughs) It's like writing history with uh, writing history with lightning. What Wilson said, and he was a historian. That's the worst part. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did not uh, have him in my top five or ten when you asked me the favorite president's question. <laughs> not one of my favorites either. Um, I just you'll appreciate this. I just had them watch the Patriot at home, um, and pick that film apart for its, you know, the scene where the, the you mean that that all didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, Benjamin Martin was a real person that that stabbed a real horse in the chest um, in the middle of the Battle of Cowpens, or wait, is it Guilford Courthouse? You can't figure it out because the, never mind. I'm not going to go down that road. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for joining me tonight, and uh, you know we'll we'll um, I, I think people are going to be anxious to hear these kind of interviews or something different than we normally do. Um, so really, really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to. Uh, sit down, answer some questions, go through the rapid fire questions, which aren't easy for anybody to do. And uh, so I just want to say thanks. Well, I don't know how rapid my answers were to the rapid fire questions, but (laughs) thank you for having me on. I had long follow-ups too. No problem. (laughs) This was great. And big fan of your work, Mr. D keep doing what you're doing here with the podcast. It's, it's a really cool project that you guys have undertaken at Holly. Yeah. Yeah. I've been wanting to get you on an episode since we started it back in 2017 and you know, the, the pandemic here gave me the perfect chance. So I figured what the heck. Well, plus the fact that it doesn't take you six months to come out with every episode, like our, our friend, Dan Carlin. Oh, I, I do love him, but yeah, I'm waiting for some content, Dan. I'm wait. He's got the hardcore addendum feed now, which you can go listen to, which is like, he does interviews a lot of the, like this. 
Um, yep. You know what? I listened to the, I think the last one I listened to was when he talked about the USS Indianapolis. It was really yep. good. That was solid. Episode. That was solid. So, all right, man, we'll let you get going, you know, back to your projects and your two beautiful little kids and uh, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. McCracken and all the work you got. So, all right. Well, thanks for stopping by everyone. Thank you for listening.